Hi, I'm here again. Hi, here again. I'm Dad. (laughs) This is John B. Okay. All right. All right. Sorry about that. Abby, now you say your name. (laughs) Okay. And I'm Abby Denton, the illustrious. (laughs) I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, one of the messiest intros we've ever done, which is great. Can only go up. I'm here for it. We could do a second take that was, what, five seconds? Nope. <laughs> this nope. is this it's, is a shambles. This is the one and done. In fact, the podcast is over. Bye, everybody. All right. Oh, that was fun. See you next time. Yeah, it's always a pro- pleasure. <laughs> and I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet you can hear topics discussed. Uh, John B., would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? Uh, I'm John B. You may remember me from three other podcasts on here. I'm back for some reason. It's because I invited you. Oh, right. This this time I didn't insist upon it. <laughs> Impose myself. I don't do much of anything, but uh, if you're not a jerk, you can follow me at youoldsoandso on Twitter. If you are a jerk and want to follow me, please don't. But if you'd be quiet about it, I won't know. Yeah, you can lock your uh, account and be as much of a jerk as you want in there. I know some jerks must follow me just by the laws of probability, but... Shut up! I mostly... <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but... (laughs) What a twerp. (laughs) Abby, would you like to introduce yourself or do you have anything to plug? No. Okay. Are we ready to start on some topics? I guess so. Uh, John B., your topic is the 1998 Tips and Tricks magazine video game codebook, a Larry Flint publication that is not porn, but in a certain sense is not unlike porn. The the porn aspect doesn't have a lot to do with it, but I, I do remember... When picking this up as a kid, that uh, I was like, "Wait, a Larry Flint publication? He does other things." Yeah, I mean, I'm so I'm scrolling through this this image gallery you sent, and there are a bunch of pages in here that are not unlike centerfolds. <laughs> yeah, the reason I picked this one in particular is it's because the first one that Tips and Tricks magazine actually put together, where it was all codes all the time. So, yeah, you're right. This is kind of like a, a pornographic magazine, or at least it was to me, because it was all the good stuff. The part I would always turn to in other video game magazines, they made a whole magazine out of it. So, it's interesting. It was the first one they did, and then the, it was successful enough. Um, I think I sent you the first image page that said, let us know if this is cool, <laughs> and we'll, uh, this yeah. might become an annual event. And it certainly was after that, until probably until the magazine folded, which I forget when that was. Oh, so they only made one a year? Uh, yeah, at least of this size, like collecting all or nearly all. I'm sure as it went on, they had to draw the limit somewhere. But they claimed it was every cheat that they had ever been sent or published for the, for the <laughs> systems included at that time, which was pretty much all the popular I, ones and a few unpopular ones. I really like the idea that like they, they just have no filter, so... People are sending in short stories in the for- that, look, that look like cheat codes, and they well, we have to publish it. I mean, some of them read like short stories. I mean, not like submitted short stories, but there's just a uh, there's just so much in here. So yeah, I know I know after this point, a little later, especially during like the GameCube and PlayStation Two era, these kinds of code books were everywhere. But a lot of the time, they were smaller and more focused. Right. Like it's like it's here's the top three systems and the two handhelds that are on the market. This one was kind of like at the crux where it's like, okay, we can cover everything considered retro. I never had a subscription to Tips and Tricks, which it was mostly because as a kid, like your money was limited. And I know at about this time, I started subscribing to Nintendo Power for the first time. Before that, it had been, you know, random issues of video game magazines here and there when I could afford one or as a treat at like the checkout counter. But yeah, this one instantly attracted my eye back then. And it was... It was an interesting way to page through. A lot of reading magazines was encountering games that you did not would never have the money to play because they would just cover right, yeah. they covered everything. So it was so much more. But I got a window to that with like the bits of artwork on these pages and it's all cheat codes. So yeah. You get the name of the game, you get the cheat code. Uh there's art for some games but not all of them. Some of it's spread around the page and you just get kind of a bizarre impression of what these games could possibly be. Yeah, I, I do. I remember that the uh, the sensation of reading a game magazine, and you know, you get you don't your direct exposure to games is extremely limited, but you do get this tiny window into like a, like a grainy photograph, like a small photograph on the magazine, and like maybe there's a paragraph about the game. Uh huh. And that's 
your sense of most of the gaming landscape is is your your perspective of these of these games via these tiny windows uh, and I really have a lot of nostalgia for that probably just because I was young when I saw it as opposed to it being any good but I, it kind of makes me want to write a book that's just a bunch of fake games and paragraphs about them uh-huh I think that would be really fun like mock-up screenshots uh, yeah I mean what's that guy's name who did who had a book that was like a thousand non-existent games he does like games workshop stories at the moment oh that sounds great i should look into that i need to remember his name frog croakley or something yeah frog croakley is his online name and his twitter avatar is a a duck riding a skateboard nate crowley that's his name (laughs) i remember back in the early teens this was like his first big book it was just this mega thready done of, and and this isn't to say that your idea wouldn't also be wonderful. It's proof that that is wonderful. Oh, so it's not exactly. It's like a similar thing. It's yeah. It's it's different. Uh, One hundred best video games that never existed. That sounds very good. That sounds like an excellent book with concept art. <laughs> just gotta stick it for my friend. I've I've got to say though, um, my anxiety about this whole cheat code book premise, and I I distinctly remember. Buying like a little paperback of game cheats, little like black and white uh-huh. matte black print on uh, newsprint kind of thing at like a school book fair in the 90s, which just seems like a, a terrible influence to be giving to kids is that on a given issue of this and like 1998 cheat code almanac or whatever that's covered the games all the way back to the in television, the, the NES, all these early things. Uh, what is 1998 only going to cover the last 365 days of cheats, or is it just going to be longer? So they said it was every cheat cent, but the NES section is only two pages. <laughs> and I, and I know there are things on here like Godzilla has a ton of cheat codes, but it is not in this book. So my belief is probably that the magazine started way after the NES came out. So they had like a legacy section, and they would print some of the cheats. And it's not necessarily all games that were current at that time, but I'm going to guess that these are all cheats that appeared in the magazine before and the NES just wasn't popular long enough for, for that to happen. I really like the idea that the magazine just has to keep getting longer. And <laughs> so like that that period where they accidentally accepted a thousand different poems that kind of look like cheat codes, <laughs> just, there's just no getting rid of those. Yeah. They're in there forever. I remember encountering fake cheats on game FAQs and like being really frustrated by that. That was always fun back in the day. Yeah. One thing that worries me is you said uh, if you had the money to buy one of these cheat code magazines and cartridge based games were like $200. So th- th- just proportionally, if, if you don't have the money for one of these magazines, then even if you scrounge up that much, then none of these cheat codes will mean anything to you. You'll look at them and you'll imagine... Being able to afford an electricity bill that you could use to, to use a stolen video game console or something, and you'd turn out your little pockets and a moth would fly out. <laughs> and it's it's a Dickensian life you must have led. I mean, that's not really that's that's the weird part. It was it, information for its own sake was kind of fascinating. And like hmm. and in a lot of cases we talked about maybe it was rose-colored glasses looking at this and thinking, oh, wow, this picture of this game was wonderful to you. But honestly, a lot of games are fucking terrible. So (laughs) reading about them in some cases, especially as a Nintendo 64 fan (laughs) who had that over the PlayStation, was the optimal experience. Oh, yeah. I think that's true even today that the vast majority of games like are better served by someone who likes the game telling you about it in a paragraph. Yeah. So, like, you would look at the map in Nintendo Power, and you would experience more of the game than somebody who bought the actual game because the game was bugged and you couldn't get through it. So, you actually got the more complete experience. And the other thing about it is it wasn't just all cheats. I mean, even though they said it was the all cheat code magazine, but they put the pages I scanned were mostly not cheats because you can look up most of this stuff. The What you mostly sent is, like, here's the, the pages that are introducing the, the systems, I guess. Right. Uh, and the reason I was talking about how them, like, this magazine seems to be full of centerfolds is that there's just these uh, glorious photographs of the hardware covering these pages. Yeah. I mean, for a one-page spread, it's really incredible. Like, for each system, you have just this one page with, you know, four or five paragraphs, and they highlight all this weird stuff. Like, on the PlayStation 1, uh, you know, if you haven't been keeping up with all the enthusiast magazines like Electronic Gaming back in the day, you get a nice digest version of some wild stuff like the Net Your Rosie 
dev kit system or the NEGCON, the Namco analog controller, which was analog by twisting twisting the halves of the controller. And it reads kind of like the Arkanoid dial, except it's perpendicular to the controller. I'm absolutely in awe of how much, uh, I, I guess this must have been clip art that they, they were using on like the cover and stuff. There's a bit in one of the pages you sent us. It's just like every character they must have had art for. It's Sonic the Hedgehog and Klonoa and Parappa the Rapper and Mallow from Super Mario RPG and Crash Bandicoot and the Snowboard Kids and Airzonk and Temjin from Virtual On. Oh, it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's Game Master Anthony's birthday party, man. This is great. <laughs> you know, they, they had a lot of that on file because publishers would send the art disc and the art assets for coverage for games. I remember um, for a few years when Nintendo... Nintendo had their press site for E3, the password would get passed around so you could download high-resolution packages of all that kind of art. That's really neat. So this is my, those info sections were my first introduction to a lot of things, including a picture of Shigeru Miyamoto. First time I saw his actual face was in this magazine. Uh, Another thing, as a Nintendo kid growing up, the Street Fighter series kind of ended with Street Fighter 2. I think that's true for everybody else, too, though. I mean, Street Fighter Alpha 2 did make it to the Super Nintendo in some form. But I'd read about the other ones, and I'm like, who are these Akuma and Dan characters? It's like, and all the weird codes to unlock them. Right. And things like that, or like on Pocket Fighter. I, th- I think the only shame about this is it was only about halfway through the Nintendo 64's lifespan. And Midway, I think, was just getting started with the cheat codes back in the, back then. Mm-hmm. Because there were, there were a lot of Midway games. Of course, NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat in the arcade. We're just loaded with codes. Right, yeah. And you you had games in those series, and then the racing games. They supported the Nintendo 64 quite heavily, so... It's interesting to think about cheat codes in the arcade, because the reason you don't see cheat codes anymore... Well, first of all, like the reason you didn't see them 10 years ago is because of achievements. Yeah. Uh, But the reason I, I think you don't see them now is that you pay for cheat codes. Hmm. Yeah. Like to add a hat to a game. How spurious. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's definitely cheating. But the fact that there were cheat codes in like NBA Jam is proof that you can have microtransactions and uh, have it still be compatible with that sort of ethos, the cheat code ethos. Yeah. I mean, I remember directly when when the Godfather game came out, Originally, it had cheat codes to do things, and then when it hit the, the Xbox 360, those became microtransactions. Literally, the same things you could do with a cheat code were microtransactions on the 360 version with no cheats. Amazing. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, sometimes I would rent games just to try out the cheat codes. I mean, <laughs> some of the stuff when you're reading it, you can't believe it. Like, you'll see a character named something, or there's an incredibly long button sequence and you're like, no way that does anything. Especially when you're a kid and you don't know, a game cartridge was like magic. It's like, how do you get on there? The fact that you could press buttons to influence like the entire makeup of the game was just incredible. Yeah. Are you saying you rented these games just to call a bluff? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I remember uh, the Bloody Roar games, the first two of those uh, had cheat codes for, um, actually it might have just been in the menu, so maybe it doesn't count, uh, for Big Head Mode and uh, uh-huh. Kid Mode. And I think, I can't think of a single game that wouldn't be improved by adding a Big Head Mode, which was everywhere in the PlayStation days. I guess that was like we were just learning about bobblehead technology. Yeah, well... Be- we were just fascinated by dudes with big heads. So. Yeah. There's there's a Big Head Mode in the Frog Fractions Hat DLC. <gasps> the way it works is it, it adds a bigger version of your head to the hat sprite. <laughs> It just tags it onto the bottom. <laughs> it's value for money. It's value for money. It's, it's right. Yeah, big head modes. Uh, I remember the best the best implementation of big head mode was in WWF Attitude, which had not only big head mode, but had something called ego mode, where when the crowd cheered for you, your head got even bigger. <laughs> and you could turn both of these on at the same time. So you could start out with a massive head and just make it take up about half the ring when the crowd really got chanting with their name. I love that. That's great. It was fun to combine also with, to use it with Stone Cold Steve Austin, who had a large bald head. And then the game also had bleeding textures technology in the game. So that after, you know, as you took damage in the match, you would bleed. So sometimes you would just have this big head with blood streaming down it. It was, it was something. I know the old, uh, the British Sonic the comic would do long segments on like random Sega games. 
And they, they'd also have comic segments based on, like, Streets of Rage or whatever. Uh-huh. But one of the sections that they would frequently do would be a list of di- different codes for different games, which most magazines did. And I assume those would sometimes be the new games. Although I don't know if that was ever, like, part of a marketing blitz. I don't know if they ever tried to push a game with, like, here's the code for pulling off Katana's top or whatever. I, I never played Mortal Kombat, but you saw that in those things a lot. And and I kind of like the idea, like you were saying, you'd rent these. I like the idea of using a magazine as like a video game sommelier. Like every month they're like, oh, here's, <laughs> these are the three games you should rent this weekend. Fight your brother in the Mortal Kombat and then enjoy Uni Racers. Enjoy the bouquet. Uni Racers was definitely one I rented. I finally have a copy. Ooh. Did the cheat code actually exist? Are there cheat codes in that game? I can't even remember. My cartridge has a dead battery so that I haven't replaced. So my number one source for video game news, because the only kids magazine I had was subscribed to for a while was Disney Adventures. <laughs> and they would they would post pretty much, uh, there would be like, you know, five capsule game reviews and then two cheat codes a month. That was all they had uh, editorial space for. <laughs> always the Disney games, of course. Uh, not always, but frequently. Sure. I, I'm now actually very curious what other games they do. Now I need to look that up. Uh, I have some old issues of Disney Adventures. I can well, I think somebody's got an archive online. You can see they covered things. That's where I learned about Clay Fighter and uh, a lot of PC games I couldn't play, not having a PC back then. Of, of course, these days Disney never markets for um, any properties that they don't own because uh, there are none. They own everything. <laughs> yep. Are we ready for another topic? I had one last question. Sure. Go for it. Which was, do you think anyone has ever used a code book to release a statement in code to another party? Such as, like, if you decipher some sort of statement, it says, you know, I, I'm going to leave my wife this weekend. Please be waiting and I'll, I'll pick you up at seven. I feel like by the fact that they will print any code means they're leaving themselves open for just that sort of thing. I'm imagining like a drug drop, like mm. you'd want... The, the magazine to come out weekly instead of yearly. <laughs> People apparently use like GameFAQs forums for this sort of thing. Like if you – you'll sometimes run across GameFAQs forums that are just full of people posting gibberish. <gasps> and the uh, – That's just called GameFAQs. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's there's, – there's a, there's a <laughs> certain – quality of gibberish that GameFAQs has that this was not. The hypothesis that a lot of people have is that this is people illicitly communicating in a public way, but in a way that can't be understood publicly. I, I heard that, um, I think it was Counter-Strike, people would um, write words in bullet holes on the wall to communicate, like, we need to plant the bomb there. Because, like, it's one of the few ways to communicate on the internet that there's no record kept of it, but everyone can easily access it. That's really funny. That's I, that's interesting because I, I, if I were to have guessed, I wouldn't have guessed that, that everybody saw the same pattern of bullet holes. Hmm. When, when network is at a premium, um, you're not going to bother sending all the exact physics state of every object in the world, like... Uh, and it'll happen where you're playing a multiplayer game and you're like, you're trying to hide behind, you know, a ragdoll corpse that's on the ground. But for the other people, the other, the other players, that corpse fell a completely different way. Hmm. Because at that point, they stop replicating across the network. So, they just leave each person's local physics engine to to do what, do what they may. And so, the, then you're just crouching behind nothing. <laughs> Does that have anything to do with delay-based versus rollback netcode? Is that why people are so up in arms about I legit don't understand what rollback netcode is for. Like, I don't know enough. I think if I understood fighting games better, I would be able to speak to that. Well, they put role in Marvel vs. Capcom 2, but as I understand it, she's not in Marvel vs. Capcom 3 or Infinity. And so, the new netcode puts role back. There we go. <laughs> uh, hang on. I almost get that. Is that a Mega Man joke? <laughs> Yes. Yeah, she was she okay. was the best one in MVC too. <laughs> All right. She fights with uh, brooms and stuff. She's just cleaning up. Yep, and she's in Tatsunoko versus Capcom as well, but a different version. And she's just short enough that she's undefeatable. Different moves, and they put her theme song in. She's the only one who has her own theme song for the credits, which was her song from the Marvel games. Aw. I know too much about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Abby, your topic is why Grease 2 is the best superhero musical, a mild defense of the 60s Superman musical. 
I just really like those two musicals. I think they're very good. Have either of you seen them? I have not. No. They're good. Next topic. <laughs> That's a very mild defense. Oh, fine. <laughs> well, I'll say the stage version, which was um, the writer and uh, mu- music writer composer of uh, Bye Bye Birdie also did the Superman musical. It was, I think, their next project. And it was a terrible bomb. It ran for like 30 days, which was very short at the time. And it wasn't great. And it was kind of racist. Like there was like a a gang of Chinese acrobats were like among the villains. And they didn't have like what you'd call a plot or like a story arc. They were just there to be wacky villains, presumably all played by uh, this being New York in the 70s, white heroin addicts. Or maybe it was the 60s. I don't know. I'm sure there was heroin there at the time. Anyway, uh, when they re-staged uh, it for CBS TV a few years later, because the, the price of everything had gone down because it bombed so terribly, they were all replaced with uh, mafiosos who were a lot better because they were all performed just like at 110% of how you imagine a, a cartoon mafioso. There's just a scene where they all like start cha-chaing around a room and chanting, Coitons for Superman! Coitons for Superman! <laughs> and it, it's beautiful. It's magnificent. It's like they tried to kind of do like like comic book panel things for like scene transitions and stuff. Uh, and they didn't really look good, but they did look fun. Like this this appeared to have been done on... on um, when I say a shoestring budget, I, I can't think of a funny interpretation of that because it's already that's the interpretation is the funny interpretation is there what do you mean it was a- everyone's tripping over each other because they haven't been paid in the shoestrings yet the shoes keep falling off good you did it you pulled it off it was a shoestring budget rather than a crinkle cut budget i'll take it i'll <laughs> take that's good that's good um, is there an x what version of this have you seen it is there is the cbs version extant uh, the CBS version is on uh, YouTube, and the um, original soundtrack recording is, um, I don't know when the last printing was, but it, it, it isn't inaccessible. I can't imagine it's expensive on the aftermarket. Two things I like about it. One, it's probably the only adaptation of Superman I've seen where, where kryptonite never even comes up. No one mentions it. There's no wacky space aliens. The the big crisis that Superman fight, faces is... Um, an evil psychiatrist convinces him that he's just a regular guy, uh, that Superman doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> and like his main problem is just uh, he's like at a party that someone throws for him when the bad guy like blows up a building and no one's even hurt because it's a, a fun comedy thing. But he's so miserable and he sings a song. Why can't the strongest man in the world be the happiest man in the world? <laughs> it's the worst rhyme in the history of rhyming, I don't know. I I like it's got some fun songs. I I think it's worth a look. It's better than uh, what do we call it? Spider Man Turn Off the Dark. <laughs> got that going for it. If it's better than Spider Man Turn Off the Dark, I'm very curious about that show. I'd I'd like. I'm going to track this down sometime. <laughs> but uh, it's it's good. The uh, the CBS version the the recording isn't as good. But Grease too, I would say, is sincerely the best superhero musical. It's sort of everything. That you don't really get with the Superman musical, uh, but Grease too. The the um, it's sort of like a gender swap. Grease one. It's this dorky British guy shows up at, at the same school. Some of the actors come back because Frenchie failed. She she dropped out and now she's back in school, trying to pass again. And she's like the only Didi Khan, a wonderful actress, and this dorky British guy is trying to impress Michelle Pfeiffer, <laughs> who's who's iconic in this movie. And he learns how to ride a motorcycle because she sings a song about how, like, oh, she could only fall in love with a motorcycle. But whenever he shows up, he's always wearing a, a cool helmet, and he's called the Cool Rider. And he has, he has like a like a rumble with a, with a biker gang. It's always trying to kill him, and then they think they've killed him. And Michelle Pfeiffer thinks that he's dead. We also don't see the British guy in school, but no one seems to put the the two and two together there. And then he shows up in the climax again and saves the day. And everyone's like, oh, it was Michael all along. But you'd think, like, the fake death thing, it's just weird. But it's a good, it's it's fun. It, it's better than its reputation. Its reputation is just that it's riding on the coattails of Grease, which is true. And the, the music is probably a little lower. Yeah, Grease 2 is one of those ones I know there's there's tons of tons and tons and tons of sequels that have this reputation that doesn't live up to the original. But for Grease 2 seems like it's always paired with Caddyshack 2 in my 
in my mind is like <laughs> two of a piece. And I'm wondering, it seems like I saw somebody else in the interim, since you posted this on here, give some defense of Grease 2. It might have just been you. I don't know. Because I might have read it on your Twitter. <laughs> I'll tell you. Okay. So there's like one song in it that's all these high schoolers in their sex ed class. And the refrain's like, reproduction, reproduction, let your stamen go berserk. And all these wacky things. There's another song, basically, where this man is trying to have sex with a lady under false pretenses. He's saying... Um, oh my goodness. He's saying, oh, everyone's died in a nuclear bomb blast. We have to repopulate the earth. Let's do it for our country. And it's like this patriotic song, let's do it for our country. And then she realizes that everyone isn't dead and decides not to bone him. Uh, but, th- but they are in love. So it's, it's not completely morally reprehensible. It, it's, it's just bands, my friend. It's just bands. Um, but my sister was like three when uh, our older sister gave her this uh, videotape. And so to me, it's like, this is a movie for three-year-olds. It is clearly not a movie for three-year-olds. And I, I just had this tiny infant baby sister going around, around singing these songs that she had no place even kind of knowing. Um, is there a kid's bop version? Uh huh. Which is why I think it's a whimsical. Oh, I wish. <laughs> or like the Devo 2.0 version of that. Yeah, I have not seen Grease 2. I have seen Grease. I have seen this. I have seen Grease staged locally too. Have you ever seen Nonsense? I have not seen Nonsense. It has been through town, but it's been, been some years. I wouldn't call it a masterpiece. And and we could talk for hours about uh, later, because that's had like nine sequels of Nonsense. The idea is they're putting it on in this like nun-run convent school that's doing Grease. So there's all the Grease set on the stage, and they're performing amidst the set of Grease. I like that. So I always thought it was a fun premise. That is a cool idea. You know, I enjoy musicals despite certain aspects or sometimes because of certain aspects, even even when they're messy. You know, as long as the, if the songs are good, that can that can carry a lot. What would you say is the difference between a musical and an opera? Um, kind of kind of the edge case has always been Sweeney Todd for that, where operas typically have all no dialogue that isn't sung, and then mu- musicals have th- numbers in the middle. So there's yeah, but there's the term uh, sung through, which refers to a musical which is all music and no dialogue. Then, op- well, opera is just the plural of opus, which means work. So, really, every there you go thing is an opera. No, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> Everything are an opera. Yeah, every. <laughs> I did read the book about Turn Off the Dark song, Song of Spider Man. That's awful. Wait, so did you read the book of the musical? Yes. Meaning the lyrics? Okay. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's a making of, it's in a behind the scenes making of that was <laughs> by the author of the book of the book of the musical. It's got some, uh, some heightened elements to it, I'm sure, from, from reality. But it was an interesting read about, you know, this famous, the show made its money back, but it, you know, it was famously kind of a laughing stock and a disaster. Yeah, I've seen clips of it. It's very entertaining. And it seems like, you know, it's not any worse than any other kind of high concept musical, but all the bad press from the technical aspects failing night after night in rehearsals and several Spider-Men being injured. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. The Tomb of the Spider-Men. Yeah, but that's that's an interesting read. If reading about musicals is uh, more entertaining than dancing about architecture, then uh, I enjoyed that one. Yeah, I, I feel like I t- I'm taking the, the recommendation of that book more seriously than I would have watching the musical itself. The musical itself is probably is pretty hard to see now, I'm sure. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. I had assumed like at any time I could bit torrent it somewhere. Grease 2, I know, is easier to see. The Superman musical. The, the soundtrack's all on uh, YouTube. That's pretty much all you need to get it. You get it. Yeah. It's not a complex story. Maybe the documentary of the original cast recording will end up on Criterion. Yeah. That you can pair it. You can pair it with the company original cast recording documentary. There, there's a very funny number that's um, just this very high-strung doctor, scientist guy, uh, who, describing why he's miserable because um, he's just barely lost a Nobel Prize every year for 30 years. And it's just a list of jokes about like how he was researching the thing that won a Nobel Prize every year, but so and so did something better. And it's it's <laughs> adorably well researched, if nothing else. That's very good. The, the Peter O'Toole of scientists. Fermi with his brilliant neutron system. That bum, he wouldn't know a neutron if it kissed him. It's great. 
Are we ready for another topic? Certainly. Uh, my topic is Tower of Druaga. Uh, the short version is that this is a, a game it's from 1984. It was, it was a hit in Japan in the arcade. And the, the thing that is interesting about it is that it is extremely focused on secrets uh, to the point where like players had to invent the note sharing culture that Japanese arcades became known for in order to finish it. Uh, it's a it's a maze chase game like a like imagine Pac-Man as a roguelike except it's RPG themed and you can finish a level but if you finish the level without collecting the the secret item that is hidden on it then you're kind of screwing yourself over because realistically you need to find just about every hidden item in order to finish the game and the methods of finding the secret item get more and more obscure things like uh you know you don't touch the the outside walls of the dungeon for 12 seconds or push the one player start button to make the secret item appear or you kill six colored slimes in a specific order to make the secret item appear uh and people had to figure each of each of these steps out and then figure out what the item is for what do you do with it, it it's as if like in order to beat Atari 2600 adventure you needed to solve the e hidden easter egg puzzle in there and then there were also like eight more different hidden Easter egg puzzles in there. So you need to like get an entire community working on this thing at once to play it. I, I tried playing it. I, I put like a couple of hours into it and it's a complete disaster played solo. I played the, um, the version in the Namco Museum, um, and the way they make it playable is... Which, uh, which Namco Museum? Uh, the one, it's the one on Switch. Okay. And the way they make it playable is each floor just has a button to tell you how to get the secret item. Yeah, I think that I don't know if it was the first time they did that, but I know that was a big feature of the DS, the Nintendo DS version. And you had the second screen to help you out there too, so it would just display it. Right, right. But I found that like without that draw, there's almost nothing good about the game. Yeah. Like it I don't think it plays very well, but but it was incredibly influential like playing it I saw influences on a lot of classic Japanese games like Bubble Bobble and Mylan Secret Castle and Castlevania 2 and The Legend of Zelda. Yeah. Like Zelda specifically, like the movement feels like the movement and the sword play feel like they got they they pulled a lot from this game. Yeah, I've played I've played just a little bit of it because I wasn't gonna sit there with a guide and go through and find everything. Yeah. For for what it's worth, the little tune is very catchy. <laughs> That's true. I've got it. I think you can get it twice on Switch. There's the NES version as well as in a, the two Namco collections that are just NES games. Yeah, my understanding is that the NES had a different set of secrets. Like they they decided that like oh we can't just let people take the information they had from the arcade and reuse it at home. We need to come up with new new secrets. Of course, yeah. That was that was de rigueur for uh, arcade to home conversions for a while. Right. For different reasons. I know Capcom Capcom liked to monkey with a lot of their ports and actually make them better and more in-depth games because they had to keep your interest at home. Yeah, yeah. Playing to the strengths of the system, like the what the NES is good at is pretty different from what arcade systems are good at. Name one thing the NES is good at. Uh, you, <laughs> uh, you can play a game for more than three minutes without the arcade operator being annoyed at you. This is called damning with faint praise. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's good at beating the master system in North America through uh, illegitimate business practices. Oh, sorry, guys. I want to go play the Gilligan's Island video game adaptation. Guess I'd better <laughs> turn on my old Famicom. Hey, I... That's you. That's what you sound like. I, I already mentioned it had a Godzilla game. I take it all back. Is Mothra in it? There was a Gilligan's Island game? I want to play that. I rented that, like, multiple times and played it with my mom. I don't know what that says about either of us. I think that means I was abused. Was it a platformer? It was. Um, it's like a top-down adventure, kind of like a River City Mansion kind of guy, kind of thing. Or a River City Ransom, but yeah, more of an adventure platformer. Interesting. Okay. There was like a weird belt scroller. Speaking of games, I first found about through code books. I remember seeing that it existed in the Game Genie code book. Be like, what? Was the uh, the cheat code like infinite bamboo and coconuts to build a helicopter to get home? <laughs> it was infinite whatever the hell you collect in that game. I think rope and <laughs> stuff like that. Here's a point for you. 
the Gilligan's Island NES game has a 4.3 out of 5 average rating, according to Google. <laughs> uh, Sonic CD has a 4.4. Yeah. It, it, it's because Gilligan's Island is almost as good as Sonic CD. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for the Christian Whitehead version of uh, Gilligan's Island for the NES. <laughs> In widescreen now and with knuckles added. That would be great. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a pass-through cartridge. <laughs> oh. There's a Wired article from 2009 saying 8-bit Gilligan's Island is a three-hour torture. It's <laughs> not bad. Why did Wired publish this? What was Atlantis no Nazo? That was like also a, a Druaga-like, I understand, where like you just walk one screen to the left and suddenly you're in a completely different place because it's this bizarre maze that you needed. Yeah, I know. A cool I'm, code for. I mostly know of that game as being one of the more infamous uh, entries on Game Center CX. Oh yeah, I know. I've watched the episode. I forget if Arino actually finished it or not. Have you watched any Game Center CX, Jim? I I watched the the one at, at some point. Kotaku localized like eight episodes of it. Yeah, and I really enjoyed those. But then I tried like watching the ones that were subtitled, and I was just like, I didn't have the attention span for it. But I really liked the the DS game. Yeah, that is a that is a fun game. <laughs> and then I tried playing the the fan localized sequel to the DS game, and I got stuck on the interminable like detective adventure game in the middle of it. Uh yeah, yeah. the The hump in the original game was probably the art the Dragon Quest like game. Yeah, that wasn't a problem for me though because I liked Dragon Quest. Yeah. We didn't get a lot of NES era or Super Nintendo era detective games. Right, right. In the video game codebook, as mentioned earlier, there there's something for uh, Namco Museum Volume 3, the Tower of Draga secret area. Uh, this isn't a secret in Draga itself. It's a secret in the... So the Namco Museum games used to uh, be these elaborate productions where you would like walk around in first person in a, in a recreated museum, an actual Namco museum, this ar- kind of arcade where you could look at very bad scans of the flyers and other memorabilia associated with the arcade game and then walk up to an actual cabinet and play it. So there was this, this quasi kind of uh, exploration aspect, but apparently there's a, a Tower of Draga secret area. While walking around inside the museum... Hold the L1 and R1 buttons and press up, right, down, left, up, right, down, left, up, right, down, left. So just going around the D-pad clockwise three times. A pickaxe icon will appear in the lower left corner of the screen. Now enter the Tower of Draga wing of the museum and walk forward until you face a brick wall. Press the action button to break open the wall. Inside, you'll see a 3D animated sequence from Draga and find another Draga machine to play. I haven't tried this trick yet. I'm not sure if it's a completely different or either a different game or a different version of Tower Draga, like a later revision. I, I have no idea what this other Draga machine is. It might just be the same game. They put it in twice for some reason in the secret area. Right. I never played Draga as a kid, but Bubble Bobble definitely is another one of those with just tons and tons of secrets. Yeah, yeah, but but is also like fairly playable even if you don't know what the secrets are. Like right. the secrets in that game are largely optional, except if you want to actually finish it and then it's a disaster. Yeah, like I always knew there was some weird logic to how items spawn and stuff. Like they went really in depth with the random number generation, but then there are even secrets beyond that. Right. And then there are even more games in bubble, the Bubble Bubble series with even more secrets. But yeah, someone was surprised. There's like hidden rooms that you get to by you have to basically not die through like 70 levels of the game or something to get all the necessaries. The, the, the DS Bubble Bobble game, which no one really played because it got terrible reviews, is literally unbeatable after a certain level because yeah. like a bubble doesn't spawn right. Uh, that's a bummer. I remember them issuing doing the recall on that. I didn't know that. That was good of them. I was thinking there have to be games out now. Like, with all of the, the, the barrage of indie games every day, and even, like, AAA games that no one's ever going to talk about, there have to be games out there that have Towers of Druaga-like uh, post-game, whatever you'd call it, like these weird mystery puzzles that no one will ever find because, like, not enough people will notice these things, and it'll just never be seen. I feel like maybe once every six months, uh, someone confides in me that they they hid a bunch of stuff in their game inspired by frog fractions and no one ever found it because no one cared enough about the game 
that is. <laughs> I'm sad now. <laughs> yeah, it's a bummer. That makes sense. Yeah, the, the the last like giant popular game I can think of that had a huge level of secrets like that and also enough of an audience would be La Milana. Yeah, I wonder what how they pulled that off. Like that's a good example of a game that was a commercial. Was that a free game before it was a commercial game? Originally, yeah. Like I that's that, okay. That that explains it. Yeah, I forget if it was developed on actual MSX hardware or if there was a real MSX version. I know it was meant to emulate that kind of style, though. Right. But yeah, that version was free, and then they remade it. I don't know if they're targeting PC and and Wii originally. It was supposed to be a WiiWare game, and it eventually did come out. But I know there was some issue getting that out. And then I don't know how La Mulana 2 is doing. I don't see a lot of people talking about it. But I'm also reading forums a lot less these days. So even Spelunky 2, which I bought and have enjoyed, I still haven't beaten. So, you know... Oh, and that's like the easy version of La Mulana, <laughs> right? Yeah, Spelunky too. I mean, it, I, I feel like I, I don't, I shouldn't trust my own sense of these things because I'm not as plugged into the indie scene as I was ten years ago. But I do feel like it certainly made the rounds, but it's not setting the world on fire like the original game did. Yeah, such is the nature of sequels. That that is kind of unfortunate because I've gone back to Spelunky One as much as I played that and. I think the biggest tweak with two is that there's just so much more stuff that like your your stuff per second rate is so much higher yeah. in terms of what you encounter. <laughs> the levels feel incredibly open and slow now in the original for some reason because there's just much less. And I think the tiles in the new game are have a lot more variation in verticality, mm-hmm. even though they're – I think they're the same size, roughly speaking. I know size of things has changed a little, but – yeah. Did you ever check out Nightmare of Druaga? So I when I first read about Tower of Druaga, I heard about the sequel and I bought it and I tried playing it and I didn't really get it, but it was because I didn't understand that it was a roguelike. Yeah. <laughs> like I had I had played NetHack at that point. I'd beaten NetHack at that point. So like I knew what roguelikes were, but for whatever reason I didn't it didn't click with me because I never played a mystery dungeon style roguelike. Yeah, and that is in the Mystery Dungeon series too. It's one of the, the spin-off license titles. Right. There are so many of those. Every week I feel like I learn about a new one that sold a million copies in Japan. It's it seems like they're picking up in pace too. Well, just earlier this year the PSP Sharon the Wanderer Mystery Dungeon game finally got ported to other systems. It's on PC and Switch now. It was that specific one very good. Yeah, it was the Tower of Fortune and the Dice of Fate. Yeah, I I know it received a lot of praise. Like the previous one before that had been on Wii and the version we got in North America, I think there was like some online functionality that they just cut out entirely from the US version for understandable reasons. Mm-hmm. So that was like the last good one and it was good. I have the, the DS port of the original and I've still ne- that's another one I've never beaten yet. I've gotten close. I've finally gotten to like the final kind of area once or twice. But it has those persistent elements, like items you can store. And it seems like you have to grind that out. Or there's something with the jar system and combining items that I haven't quite figured out that I think would give me more of an edge. That game is kind of brutal. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Like, And, and the the way you share items between runs seems pretty... Like, I, I think I wouldn't enjoy that aspect of it. Like, one of the things about NetHack that I like about classical roguelikes where there's truly no communication between runs is that you can lose a run and not feel bad because you can just start a new like especially if you lose early on you haven't lost very much you've lost like five minutes of your time uh but if that that sort of thing can like screw a future run as well or like you've been building up a particular particular item over several runs like that's a real bummer yeah i know i have a sword that was powered up in that game and i lost it on a run but uh, the DS version had a lovely rescue feature, which was online functionality. So, oh right, I think you can do it online, but but there's also a password version of that where you can trade, you share a long password with somebody, and they come and find your corpse in the game, and that gives them a password which they then give back to you, so you could revive yourself. That's really cute. That's how you know you have a friend. I did it randomly with somebody on the cheap ass gamer forums of all of all people, <laughs> if I rem- if I remember correctly. Uh, Are we ready for another topic? I think so. 
All right, for this, we're going to watch Chibo Mato's Sugar Water music video at one quarter speed. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count down from three and on zero, we hit play. Okay. Three, two, one, play. There we go. Here we go. There's two, two ladies sleeping in bed. Rise and shine. Two ladies. And they're just, they're still in bed. They're still just sleeping there. And it's a, it's a Brian De Palma dream of split screen here. Right. I was always so impressed with this music video. It blew my mind. Yeah. Do we want to just get right into it? Do we want to just talk about what the, the gimmick is? Sure. So the idea of this video is that um, it's a palindrome where they shot, the whole thing is one continuous shot, but they're playing it in split screen where one on the left, they're playing it forwards and then on the right, they're playing the same video backwards. Not only backwards, but reversed horizontally as well. Oh, is that true? I didn't notice that. Yeah, that that is the tough thing. Um, so, spoilers for this video. Uh, please, if you haven't seen the video and you're watching along with us, I would suggest watching the whole thing first and then coming back to the commentary. <laughs> so, you can have your mind blown before I ruin it. <laughs> I mean, I still look at it. And I'm still like, how did how did that happen? Yeah, so I was paying I was paying close attention last time. It is the same video, but yeah, it is uh, horizontally switched. I also wonder, like, this is one of the only the only video content prior to smartphones that shot in portrait mode. <laughs> do you think they just rotated? You could do the this camera? as a TikTok response. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I think they might have just gated it, you know, enough or matted it, and in, in the to the proper ratio. Right. Because imagine if um you you turn on letterbox mode for like old widescreen movies or whatever and uh it's just one of these videos playing alongside of Indiana Jones or whatever just a lady <laughs> in the shower pouring powder all over her head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the the um like when re- when they're remastering video games that are 4/3 and they have to put like weird shit on the sides of the screen. So in both cases in the video, the t- the two uh, women are doing mostly the same actions. Being so yeah, they wake ex- up together. It's extremely carefully choreographed. Yeah, they wake up together. They one takes a shower. The other one uh, holds a box of sugar over her head and pours up into the box of sugar. She wakes up with sugar on her head. Right. So she takes a sugar shower. And only between the two side by side images do you see sugar water. And the sugar and water never touch. Yeah. So one's one's blow drying her hair. The other one has the fan. The singer has the fan blowing her hair. When I was young, my friend gave me the album this was on. And like half of the songs on this are like about chicken wings or whatever. <laughs> and all these different things. And I just thought that they were it was like a food themed band. Like I thought Chibo Mato was like Italian for like to eat. I, they, I think they, that's not so far from the truth, yeah. Yeah. Just love food. Of, I, I related strongly to that about them. <laughs> yeah, their their other big song is "Birthday Cake," at least among gamers. Good for them because it was on the Jet Set Radio Future soundtrack. Oh yeah, but yeah, this is this is a Michelle Gondry video, and it's the very high concept. Uh, what I like about his work is this one is all pretty much all practical effects. Yeah, it's the single idea just executed with impeccable timing. He'll use CG, but he'll use it in interesting ways in other ones. And this is another one where the form of the video is very much inspired by the structure of the song musically. There's the, we just got past the line when a black cat crosses my path, and they're both going downstairs when walking backwards. But yeah, like around the world, it was probably his first big one in the United States. I have the DVD collection that this is on, along with all his other videos. Right, right. That's a quality watch. I've seen... I watched through that DVD as well. It's like every single one of those is a banger. Yeah. And it's interesting how he has, you know, he has these overarching ideas that are all related, this kind of meta and playing with rhythm and timing and visualizing the, the actual music. But yeah, this this one is all is all practical as far as I can tell. I don't think there's anything practical about this. She's walked down the stairs backwards. <laughs> the special effect is running the tape, the film backwards. That's the... Uh, These days, you need a computer to reverse the footage. <laughs> this song in particular, it's, uh, you know, essentially two long, long lyrics with a verse punctuated by a verse of la-las at the end. It already has this symmetric structure. 
Yeah. Do, do, was the song deliberately constructed as a palindrome, you know? I don't know if the song... I haven't looked up the lyrics. I don't know if the song itself is a palindrome, but uh, the, the other song and music video that's a lot like this in construction was... Uh, why am I blanking on the name? They might be Giants' I Palindrome I. That's a very funny... I hadn't heard of the name of that song. By the way, that's a very funny song name. Yeah. It is. Uh, uh, Kylie Minogue. So, he did the video for Kylie Minogue's Come Into My World as well, which is has a, uh, a four-part symmetric structure. And it's like exactly symmetric. And in that video, we can save that video for another day. <laughs> uh, is that the one where they... Like she keeps walking in a loop, and their old the old copies of her like keep going in the loop. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's a good gimmick. It's that's one of those gimmicks that like the director has this one idea, and then spends like an hour shooting it, and then like his team of compositors work for six months to make it all look good. Yeah, I'm sure he had some hand in that too because he he was probably there monitoring the timing. We're in the middle of the video, and this is the part that always. As simple as this, the video concept is, this is the part that always confuses me where I'm like, wait, what? How did they do that? One girl has just crashed her car into the other on the moped. You killed me. And then you killed me, but mirrored. I'd never understood what actually mechanically was happening here. Like, And apparently, not only did she crash the car and kill her, but then the person who did the killing like follows her down the street yelling at her. <laughs> What do you think you're doing, dying? Did Did either of you see Twin Peaks: The Return? Uh, no, I never finished season two, so I feel like I, I don't deserve to watch the third one. This This whole Nor mo- I. This whole moment is a very David Lynch kind of. <laughs> so she hits her, and but clearly she didn't die. She's getting up, but in the other half of the frame, what looks like is happening is that she has just hit her, and now she's freaking out about it and driving backwards away from the accident, <laughs> like guilt-ridden. It's like a mini-movie that plays with that idea of identity or... You watch this movie, you don't need to see Tenet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a much shorter palindrome. Yeah. So, now on the left, when you listen to it with the audio, the singing actually matches the lips now. Right, yeah. They they didn't have the... Presumably, they didn't have the time to to teach the other person to lip sync the first half of the song backwards while they were doing their choreographed routine. Yeah. Or they just didn't matter. There are plenty of music videos where the people involved are not singing the song and it's just a movie. So you you might see her mouthing the words on the reversed video. Right. The first time through. But it's not matching up, so you might just think whatever about it or ignore it. And then when you get to the halfway point it plays through forwards Suddenly, you're paying attention. It's now going up the stairs. Return of the Black Cat. Yeah. For for this part of the commentary, just listen to everything we said in reverse. Yeah. I also am very entertained that I, didn't, I never noticed this before this watch, but the You Killed Me note is it came out of the mailbox and she's about to return it to the mailbox. Yeah. So, it plays with that future aspect too. Like there's this time travel thing to it. Right. So playing with that cause and effect and stuff, it's it's a fun one. The cat goes in backwards and then comes out. Does it come out forwards? Yes. From the other side. Do we remember what year this video actually nineteen ninety six? Okay. So this is before Semisonic's closing time. Really? Ninety six. Copyright ninety six. Maybe that's just the song. Maybe they came out around the same time. No, I th- I think you're right. I think this was I think this was earlier. Like I, I think of Chibomato as being a Turn of the Millennium Band, but that's probably just because that's when I was listening to them. Yeah. Well, that video really has no business existing then, does it? <laughs> Not that long takes haven't been done before, but... Oh, shower time. And for, all the ba- for all the backwards stuff in this video, I'm amazed how good it looks. Like, it it looks just backwards enough. Yeah. How do you take off a shirt like that backward? I guess you have to thread it on your arms... Oh yeah. Hold it on your elbows. We can't we can't rewind to examine that because that would just take even more time out of this podcast. Uh but yeah. in a perfect world I would be rewinding and like, how did they get that shirt on? Yeah, we'll have we'll have to write up the WikiHow article afterwards. Maybe it was uh maybe it was digitally composited in. Maybe it's the one special effect. <laughs> maybe it's just a trick shirt. Yeah. CG shirt. Maybe they're just that good. 
I mean, uh, maybe that's what Miho Hattori was practicing instead of practicing lip syncing the the song backwards. There's uh, performance art pubs where you can go to to see people and tip them to to put their clothes on backwards. <laughs> you mean like that you turn around and the the zippers in the front or something? Well, it it seems as if it's stripping to us in in our time frame, but they're actually putting their clothes on like while moving backwards in time. Oh, that's incredible. It it is incredible. There's briefly two of them because like you have to sort of thread yourself. Otherwise, you'd be intersecting with yourself going back forwards again. So, it's tricky. Right. I feel like I said it's shower time like five minutes ago. That's the one thing. That's the one thing about this video. <laughs> this was 16 minutes if we're at yeah. 0.25. Yeah. And now pouring sugar on yourself. Oh, it all makes sense now. Mm-hmm. I have a complete understanding of why she's going to bed with a sugar head. They wake up, oh, they take oh, a shower, she's gonna... go down the stairs, they both drive, and there's a crash. And then it all happens backwards. Those are the main plot beats. There's really not much to it. And then the ads appear. The ads appear above the, the video, so you can't actually see what they're writing on the window. Yeah, but it's Sugar Water. Spoilers. That's the name of the song. You gotta buy the DVD. Right. So, we saw we saw Sugar Water before, but it was all written in reverse, and now it's all together. Almost like a sense of completeness, like the world has been put right again. Little bookends. And then the- oh, I forgot the flower pot jumps up when it- uh. <laughs> so yeah, just little touches like that. Like I said, just backwards enough. Little things to make it clear that it's backwards, but there's things like hair or whatever. There's not much of it like blowing in the wrong direction or things like that. Right, yeah. All the little backwards touches are very specific. Their hair is plastered to the sides of their head. Do either of you ever like hold out your arms like that to show that you're yawning? Uh yeah, theatrically, like I have to teach my yeah. son how to yawn, so I yawn in front of him. Uh, I do that, but that's only because um, I'm over 30 and and you stretch. I've been teaching your son how to yawn as well. Oh, good. He the says I'm better at Skype it. Skype sessions. It, someone has to do it. Yeah. You've just been playing playing this podcast for him. Oh, that reminds me. I haven't been posting about it because I'm theoretically anonymous. I have a baby nephew now. Oh, congrats. And I want to show everyone pictures of this little little tiny baby. He can already grasp beans with his hands. Should I put them in the show notes? He's he's essentially a genius. Where are you putting him in the are you putting him in the Skype call or in the <laughs> Oh I wish, I wish. You get to visit him in October. Congrats. Grasping beans, that's no small feat. Hey he does have small feet. <laughs> I'll be playing Dr. Robotnik's mean bean machine soon enough. <laughs> this <laughs> tiny, tiny feet. Well, that's all the time we have for Topic Lords. Uh, John B., if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on the Topic Lords Discord, which if you're listening to this, you probably know me there. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter, at you old so-and-so. Uh, don't be a jerk, and we'll all be good. And Abby, if this is something that you want, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, I'm. I'm at. Uh, I, I have an audio sitcom called Cyber Cafe at abbydenton.podbean.com. Uh, no hyphens or nothing there. I'm on Twitter, M I Z A B I T H A, Abby Denton. Uh, you can feel free to be a jerk there, because uh, I, you know, I'm not as judgmental as my friend here. That's true. She still follows me. Jerks welcome. Jerks welcome. That's what I. Oh, <laughs> you're lovely. Don't insult yourself. You're my friend. Yay. You're my friend too. And and so are you, Jim. Yeah. Good. We're all of us friends. It's good to have friends. Good. I'm also teaching my son about friends. Aw. How do how do you establish the concept of friends? Uh first you first you have to he has to like somebody and then you explain to him that that's that means you're friends. Okay. I was gonna go with a proof by contradiction angle there. <laughs> just just to find friends by their inverse. Okay, sure. I'll take it. First he, first he has to hate somebody, and then I <laughs> explain what opposites are. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on. See ya, everybody. Thanks for inviting again. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords.
Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.